Thank you, church. Praise the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. I don't know if you heard of the pastor who decided to get out of the ministry and he became a house painter. He goes out to this first job. He's painting this little old lady's house. He gets all his materials laid out. He gets an idea. He looks around and nobody's looking. Puts a little thinner in the paint. Stirs it up and paints a test spot. Looks good. Nobody's looking. He thins it a little bit more. Stirs it up, paints another test spot. Looks good. Man, he looks all around, makes sure nobody's looking, and he puts a lot of thinner in the paint. Stirs it up, paints another test spot. That looks good, so he paints the house with really thin paint. Picks up his check, loads up his materials, he goes home, and he's thinking to himself, man, this is great. It worked out great. I got paid to paint the house once. I got enough materials left over to paint another house. In a few years, it's going to look a little faded. She's going to need me to come back. But he goes to bed and he just cannot sleep. He's tossing and turning and he hears this voice screaming him from the heavens, Repaint, you thinner, repaint! <laughs> now what that had to do with the message, I don't know, but I was taught in college you were supposed to start with jokes, so I did. <laughs> Those of you who don't know me, I grew up in Alaska. I've been a commercial fisherman. I've been an assistant guide. I've been a construction worker for most of my life, a truck driver. I've been a working person. I'm also a hunter and a fisher and a really avid whitewater uh, rafter. In fact, I kind of have this saying that when the waves get too big for anybody else, they're getting just right for me. My wife and I run a ministry called Copper River Float Ministry. We just finished up our 16th year, and Copper River Float Ministry exists to help churches start or restart their men's programs. And it's been something that I've learned over the years of how difficult it is to, to get men's ministries going, and it's been my heart to, uh, to do this. And I've also been a men's pastor. But I've got to tell you, I'm probably the most unqualified speaker you guys have ever had on this platform. I know you guys have some great speakers. I am one of those rare people that managed to fail speech in two colleges. No joke, two colleges, four semesters, and four different professors, and I made the pants too short every time. So if this message comes out with any degree of success, it's because God did it. But I do feel like that I'm qualified to speak about the storms of life. If you lived in Alaska in 1991, you will remember these news stories that flashed over my head. This beautiful little 11-year-old girl left her home in Tasmania, Alaska, just outside of Glen Allen. She walked down a quiet country road to meet a friend, and she disappeared. For the next 10 days, there was a massive search going on for her. And on day 10, her body was discovered just a few miles from her home. She'd been kidnapped. She had been sexually assaulted, and she had been murdered. That little girl was my daughter. And that is a storm in life. 
But I'm not here to talk about the tragedy. I'm not here for belated condolences. I'm here to tell you that we serve a very great God. The God who loved us enough to send his son to hang on a cross and die for us. Literally to be murdered for us. And a God that loves us that much, only a God can take a mess like that and turn it into a message. A test into a testimony. A tragedy into a triumph. And a victim into a victor. And that's the God I wanted to lift up today. In the English language, we have words. Children that lose their parents are called orphans. A person who loses their spouse is called either a widow or a widower. But do you realize that there is no word in any language on earth that describes the parent that has lost their child? Maybe because that's... (laughs) Losses without words. I'm going to try to put some words to it today. Now I'm sorry to say that in some churches this is a politically incorrect message. Because there's a message out there that is sometimes caught and it's sometimes actually taught that you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You start your walk of faith, your life is going to be wonderful. You're going to drive these beautiful cars and you're going to live in these beautiful homes and God's supposed to open the storehouses of heaven and rain down their blessings. And they want you to believe that you ought to be dumb enough to dance in the aisles and sing, let it rain, let it rain, let it rain. I do not know what Bible they're reading because every character that I've read in this book had some hard times. But people of faith, I want to tell you, if God made our lives wonderful because we accepted him, we would not want eternity. We would want to stay in this messed up, sinful world. God allows those storms in our lives. But I want to give you an illustration here. This beautiful little instrument that I have in my hand is called a sexton. This is what they did the celestial navigation on the old sailing ships. It was invented in the late 1600s, early 1700s. It's actually been used clear until 1950s and 60s. And there's some commercial captain's licenses. You still have to be proficient with one of these even today. But if you were to look through this eyepiece, Instead of being round like a spotting scope or a telescope, it's what they call a split image. The image is divided in half, so in one half you will see the horizon. The other half reflects into this mirror, the reflection in this mirror, that reflects into the stars. And if you were a navigator in a sailing ship, what you you would do is to find the Polaris star or a star that is made for celestial navigation... And you would get it in the center of one half of the eyepiece, and you'd get the horizon on the other half. And by cranking this micrometer, you would get this reading, and by some math, you can work out your position on a a map. Now, here's the thing. If you were a navigator on the sailing ship, you will have to get your readings when the weather's clear. 
Because you know the storms of life are coming and the life is going to obscure the heavens. And then you were on dead reckoning. And there's a reason why they called it dead reckoning. Ships crash and sailors die. People, the storms of life and the storms of faith are coming in all of our lives. We need to know our position and we need to know our direction and we need to know it before the storms hit. But we don't need a sextant. We need our scriptures. I want to talk to you today about the battle of bitterness. I want to show you some people that went through this. And we're going to be in Malachi. We're going to start at chapter 3, verse 14. We're going to work our way backwards. But I need you to understand where these people are coming from. This is the children of Israel. They've returned from captivity. They're rebuilding their lives. They're rebuilding their homes. The temple has been rebuilt. A form of worship has been established. But for them to be coming back from captivity means that they've lost a war. And war in Bible times things is not wars like we fight today. I mean, we drop a bomb on an insurgent hideout and we're worried about civilian casualties. War in Bible time was not worried about that. The besieging army would come in and would besiege the city, and when it came time, they would crash, burn, destroy the, the gates, and there would be this huge sword and shield battle inside the gates. And if the assailing army took over that, the soldiers would, when they ran over that group, they would go right down the, str the streets inside the gate. And so if the next group was still holding their own, now they have a battle between two fronts, and soon they'd work their way around the city, and the city would fall. Then they would go house to house, because the way they paid the soldiers was with spoil. And so I wanted you to imagine for a second you would be in that home. You would have the doors barricaded and everything heavy you owned in there. The soldiers would bash down the door. They would find the men of the house. They'd put a a spear to, or a sword to his chest. They want to know what kind of talents he has, what kind of skills. If those are skills that they could use, he's going into captivity to be a slave. They would look at his older parents and say, they're not going to make the journey back. And they will slaughter them before their eyes. They would look at their young children and they would say, this is going to be a, a, a liability. So they would slaughter them. So the only thing that would go into captivity is the husband and wife and maybe the teen or preteen kids. And Isaiah 13, 14, I'll just read it to you real quick. This is what they suffered. And everyone who was captured was thrust through and all that were caught were, will fall by the sword. The infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives ravished. Behold, I rise up the Medes against them who will not... Regard silver and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Their soul, their bows will, bow, will strike the young men. They will not have mercy on the fruit of the womb. This is what these people have suffered. So as we look at Malachi chapter 3, we will find these group of people. Number one, they're grieving people. They have suffered a very tough loss. And most of the time... Most of these people have suffered the loss because they've turned their back on God. 
And God took, had them taken into captivity to bring them back to himself. These are grieving people. Don't make the mistake that grief is done and over with. Grief lasts a very long time. This many years later, it's still like peeling off the scabs of wood. For me to share this message. For many years, I couldn't go to my kids' high school games because I always wondered what, daughter, what position my daughter would have played on in the teams. I didn't go to graduations for a very long time because I knew I would not see the milestone of my daughter walk down now and receive her diploma. In all the years, I only went to one of her friend's weddings. And that lady used to go to our, our church, and she was having babies, and only at one time did I hold one of those children. And all I could do is to keep from breaking down. Grief is a lifetime. Of loss. And if it's not a lifetime of loss, then it wasn't a loss. So that's why it's a lifetime. So these are grieving people. These are also religious people, but not necessarily people of faith. And there's a really big difference. You see, religion is working or following rules to get approval from God. It's using God as your good luck charm. It's not a relationship by grace. And people don't make the mistake as fundamental Christians we'd like to say we're not religious because we can fall off the horse on the side of religion in a heartbeat. We can go back to being religious because I was there. There was a time in my life that I traded my faith in for religion. And to be very honest, it was one of the dumbest trades I ever made in my life. See, I sat where you guys sat. Some of you people sit. I've sang the hymns, but my heart was no more being there other than the fact that people expect me to be there, and it was a payoff to God that I hoped that nothing more bad would happen to my family. Because quite... That's quite honestly, I didn't feel like I could take another loss. <laughs> These are grieving people. These are religious people. But the worst thing is these are bitter people. People of faith, when the storms of life happen, you have a choice. You can get bitter or you can get better. And it's your choice. Psychology says that you can't help. But you know what? God would not have indicted his people if they had no choice in it. I believe life is 10% about what happens to you and 90% about the choices you make of it. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 14. We're going to work our way backward, and then we're going to come and work our way forward in a little bit. I hope you understand my logic, or at least you understand why I failed speech so often. <laughs> chapter 3, verse 14. He said, it's vain, it's worthless, it's futile to serve God. What profit has it been that we have kept his ordinances and that we walked 
listen to me, mournfully before the Lord of hosts. You see, bitter people say it is worthless to serve God. Oh, they're still there. They're still doing their things. But not because of their heart is right. In chapter 3, verse 13 says, Your words have been stout against me. These people are bitter at God. These people are angry. These people are saying, God, why? It's not a question of if asking the question. It's the question of your heart. And see, these people thought that they were good enough that God should have never let this captivity happen. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Return unto me, and I will return unto you, says the Lord of hosts. Yet you say, wherein will we return? These are like back-talking kids. They're saying, what do we got to come back to, God? You see, bitter people think it's okay where they're at. They don't think they have to get better. I know I was there. See, bitter people think that by their anger and by their bitterness, they hold power over the person who hurt them. But the only one they hurt is themselves. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, Wherein have we wearied you, God? And he says, when you've called what is evil good, and when you've said, where is the God of justice? I want to take that, those two sentences apart. First, when they call evil good. It sounds like the politically correct crowd is trying to say that evil is good. And it reminds me of the politicians on 9-11 walking out, on this, out of the Capitol step and putting their hands in the air and going, where's God? And I want to say, well, dummy, you threw him out of our schools. <laughs> And you threw him out of our courts, why do you want to know where he's at? But you see, this is questioning God's authority. Does God have the right to say what is evil and what is good? Bitter people question God's authority. But even worse, where is the God of justice? <clears throat> I've been told that there's street uh, billboards showing up along the roads of Texas that are signed God, and some are really good. One of them says, what part of thou shalt not did you not understand? Signed God. <laughs> In my favorite, don't make me come down there, signed God. <laughs> but you see, when they question God's character, I was tempted to do this. I'm still tempted to this day. I read a thing on the internet of these girls that are out shopping and they come out late at night, they go to their car, they get in, dome light didn't come on. All of a sudden, they see these strange guys coming, they manually lock the doors. The guys tap on the window and says, you might as well come out. That car's not going to start. These two girls started praying, they turned the key, the car started, they tore off out of there. They got home, and almost in hysterics, they're telling their dad about this. He goes out and checks the car. These guys had cut the battery cable. And somehow it connected enough that they could start the car. Now stories like that will tempt me to say, God, why did you not protect Mandy? 
Those are questions that have no answer. And it questions the character of God. Chapter 1, verse 13, they said, Behold, what a weariness it is that we've served God. See, they see serving God as something they have to do and as a pain and not a pleasure. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, Who will open the doors of the temple for nothing or will kindle a fire on my altar for nothing? You see, bitter people will only serve God if they see a benefit from it. We hear people say, Give to God and He'll give you a hundredfold back. If I believed that nonsense, I would have stopped at Walmart and bought myself a $5 plastic airplane. And I would have found me a little guy out here and gave it to him and then said, God, did you see that? Now, I'm not asking for much. I just want a 180-horse Super Cub on Thunder Tires. <laughs> Give me a break. I didn't ask for a Learjet. It's serving, giving to God so you get the sign of bitterness. Now, I've painted this scene very black, very bleak, and very dark. But do you know what? Throughout history, throughout the Bible, and from times on, no matter how bleak, no matter how black, no matter how dark a time has been, God has always had a remnant. God has always had a small group of people that still loved him and still believed in him and still worshiped him properly. There was a time in our lives we had need to thank God. There was still Noah. There was still Moses. <clears throat> in chapter 3, verse 16, as we work our way the other direction, we are going to see the remnant that was there. Then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. When I make up my jewels, I will gather them like a son that serves me. <clears throat> Who were these people? Why are these people so different? Were they maybe... Fortunately, they were on vacation when the captivity happened. Not likely. Maybe their doors were stronger than the rest and the soldiers couldn't knock it open. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, maybe they were so spiritual they got in their little prayer corners and they prayed and the soldiers bypassed their doors. No. The remnant were one of two groups of people. Either they were people that had turned their backs on God. When they went into captivity, they learned their lesson, they learned their lesson, and they came back to God all the way. Or they were people that still kept their faith in God but went into the captivity. The storms of life happen sometimes because we make wrong choices. And sometimes they happen because somebody else makes a wrong choice and we get sucked into the vortex. What made the difference is because they kept their faith in God or they put their faith back in God. It starts with they that feared the Lord. 
These people know that God is still on the throne and God is still beside them and God is as heartbroken as they are for their loss. It says they spoke often one to another and it doesn't say what they, they talked about. But it must be about their faith because the next verse, or the next sentence is, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. The word hearken means to prick up the ears. And the heard means to listen intently. So in the din of people saying, God, why didn't you do this? What kind of God are you? God hears the remnant say, God, we still love you. We still believe in you. And we still give our life for you. The book of remembrance was written before them for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. Now the thought upon his name gave me a little bit of trouble. And I found out that it's normally translated regard. And it was actually one of the words that I read to you there as I was talking about the captivity. They will not regard silver. And I really didn't get that picture until I studied the history of potluck. You know, potluck, origin was not the nice fellowship meal that we normally have at churches. The origin of potluck was when the besieging armies would start attacking the city, the people inside, the poor people would make the best meal they knew how to prepare, and they'd put it outside their door before they barricaded their door. And it was kind of one of those unwritten laws that if you ate from that pot, or if you took what was there, you had to be a little bit nicer to the family than the rest of them. But when they get to the rich side of the town, they don't have food in it, they have money in it. And in fact, in Jericho, when Achan took the gold and the silver and the garments, the book suggested there was a potluck. It was a bribe. So what was saying in this passage, they won't regard silver. They're not going to place a value on it. They kicked the thing over and they took care of the families inside. So when you put it in this sentence, a book of remembrance was written for this remnant that still loves God and placed a high value on his name. You can't place a high value on the name of God when you're stuck in the, in the storm of bitterness. And then God says, they'll be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them as a father who spares a son that serves him. What is the difference between these two groups of people? Where did the first group go wrong? Where did these bitter people go wrong? Did they go wrong in chapter 3, verse 14, where they're saying it's vain, it's worthless to serve God? Did they go wrong in 3.13, where the words are bitter against God? Do they go wrong in chapter 2, verse 7, when they're questioning God's authority and when they're questioning God's character? Or in chapter 1, when they won't serve God unless there's a benefit to them. I don't believe so. I believe they go wrong in chapter 1, verse 2, when he says, God says, I love you. And they say, wherein have you loved God? The very basis for our salvation is for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son to be murdered for us. And become a bitter person. You have to come to the point where you question the foundation of your faith that God loves you. And that's why they're bitter people. And I want you to know, people, I know what this is like because I had the shipwreck of bitterness. It was an ugly shipwreck. And I had to turn my back on the fact that God loved me. You see, there was times that God told me over and over again that he loved me, even through this time. During this time we were searching for my daughter, we searched for her for over 10 days. There was a time that I felt like I needed to be alone, and so I walked down the rescue center of the fire hall, and I walked down this ATV trail in the Copper Basin. A beautiful fall day in the Copper Basin with the aspens in full colors. I finally was alone. And I had this tightness, like I'd built this wall in my chest to hold back the emotion that I felt like just crushed. And I'm walking down this trail. I started crying like I never, never cried before. And soon my eyes are full of tears and this beautiful picture is now just kind of kaleidoscope of blurred colors. And I don't know what I was going to do, and I, but I started singing the old hymn, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pain too much for mirth or song? When the birds press and the cares distress and the days grow weary and long? Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? Till my sad heart aches, till nearly breaks, does Jesus care? I had the lines all mixed up, kind of like now. But when I got to the chorus, I remembered the chorus, and I started singing a little louder and a little more force. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart, his heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. When I started that chorus, I felt his hand come up on my shoulder. I didn't know who he was. I didn't care who he was. I walked along singing. When I felt like I got it under control, I stopped. I took a few deep breaths. And I turned to see who this person was that was walking with me. There was no one with me. I was walking alone. Does Jesus care? The verse that I had to hang on to at this time was Hebrews 4.15. I'm going to do a little paraphrasing on it. Oh, we do have a high priest who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities, was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Because of this, let us boldly approach the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Was I in a time of need? Yes. And what did I need to know? I needed to know that my God loved me. And my God was walking beside me as heartbroken as I was. As powerful as that story is, in spite of God's constant reminding, I let myself drift. 
and just see a bitterness. Some people may not have blamed me if they realized all that went on. We searched for Mandy for 10 days. It took three months to make an arrest. Two years waiting for trial. Six months waiting for sentencing. Seven years in the appeals processes to have the case overturned on a technicality. <laughs> and while we were waiting to go to trial again, the suspect died in prison. But during this time, and very shortly after my daughter was killed, my first wife went into deeply into mental illness. And then in a very short time, her body would hold literally hundreds of scars of self-inflicted injuries. And I do not know how she survived it. But I got a visit from the state social worker that told me, we know of your wife's mental problems, and you have a choice. You will either hospitalize her against her will, because she wasn't going on her own, or we're going to remove the, your children from your home. And in the lowliest days of my life, I went to the state trooper's office and signed the papers so that the state troopers could arrest her and take her to the state mental institution in a move that I hoped would save her life, cost me my marriage. I went through some tough, lonely years as a single dad. <clears throat> and I had many, many church people come to me with these senseless cliches, pat answers, and all the time passes the very horrible rumors about me. And during that time, I sat in church saying, why, God? Like he really owes me an answer. I sang songs just like, if you had stood next to me, you would not know that I was lost in the sea of bitterness. But I sang songs. They'd sing, this is my father's world. And outwardly, I was standing upright. Inwardly, I was... Yeah, right. And during this time, I built a prison, one evil thought after another. I built this prison block by block of ways that I could get even with the guy who killed my daughter, the things I'd like to say to his family. Things I'd like to say to people who hurt me so badly and to my church family. And I built this prison wall so high that no light could get in. And I found I was miserable. I was angry at everything. And to be very honest, I was horrible to live with. What brought me out of it was choosing to see again. Choosing to see for God so loved the world. And so God so loved Dave Lemaire. And when the evil thoughts came, I found myself saying over and over again, for God so loved the world. 
And as I slowly came back to my faith, <clears throat> I found the next step for healing was finding my place of service. And that was the time 16 years ago when a church asked me to help them with the men's event, and we did a rafting trip, and I found a way to use my love for whitewater rafting as a way to serve God. But finally, I had to come to the point of choosing to leave my pain and my bitterness at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, you cannot be bitter. You cannot be unforgiving. You cannot be unloving. And you cannot be simply religious. The foot of the cross may be on a hill called Golgotha. But the foot of the cross is level ground. There are no superstars there. Billy Graham, Billy Sunday came to the cross the same way that you and I come to the cross. Broken people in need of God. In need of God's love. In need of salvation. In need of faith. That radically and dynamically changes our lives. And you know what? The person that put, caused the pain that put you there is no lower than you are. He comes needing grace. Listen to me, people of faith. The cross is a very painful thing. Believe me, it was painful for Jesus. It was painful for God to see our sin on him and turn his back on him. And it was painful, if you can imagine Jesus screaming the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so he could say, Take upon me my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The battle of bitterness is an exhausting battle. I had to make a choice to release the prisoner from the prison that I built. Oh, he stayed in the state prison, but I had to take him tear down my prison and return to my faith. And you know what? Returning to my faith did not bring my daughter back. But neither did living in the storm of bitterness. Neither did living in the prison that I built. The only one who was miserable was me. I tore down the walls. I released the prisoner. I found out the, the prisoner was really me. I decided to let God be God. Let God be the judge. And turn back to my face. And turn all the way back. <laughs> this is what led me out of my valley of bitterness. Now, don't think that I don't still have my battles. <laughs> Just when you think you won the battle, some kind of insurgent attacks again. And you've got to 
make the choice again to live in freedom. During this time in my life, I studied Job. And I knew that there had to be some magical thing there. And I read this dialogue that Job has with God. I mean, you think about what happened with Job. He lost everything, his family and all his... And he's finally sitting in that heap of ashes, scraping the boils from his body. And then he has this dialogue with God. And I'm reading it, and it goes kind of like this. Job is saying, God, you got to show up. you got to explain yourself. Finally, God shows up and says, okay, wise guy. You seem to know it all. I'm going to build the earth. How big do I need to make the foundations? I don't know. And he has this question and answer back to God. And every question that God has, Job's answer is, I don't know. And I'm reading this going, where is the magical point that Job came to? And it's not in the dialogue. It's in chapter 42, verse 10. When Job prayed for his friends, then, see that word then? At that point, God turned his captivity and gave him back twice what he'd lost. Here came these friends, these religious friends that hurt him terribly. And when he finally released those prisoners from the prison he built when he tore down the wall, then God turned his captivity. People of faith, God would love nothing more than a church to be filled full of bitter people and religious people because they are no threat to him. And I know that there are storms of life come for all of us. And I know that we battle at some point in time the battle of bitterness. Maybe it's time for us, for wherever you're at in your battle, to come back to the cross. To come back to the point that God loves you and to come back to your faith. the option is to stay discontented, angry, and live the life with no light from the cross. Maybe it's time for some of you to come to the foot of the cross and do like Reagan said to Gorbachev, tear, tear down that wall. Tear down that wall in your life to let the grace of God back in. Maybe it's time to pray for bitterness and to be healed by God and to have our lives radically and dynamically and totally changed by our faith in Jesus Christ. We're in a very dark time in history. There's evil out there that I never believed I would see 20 years ago. This is a time that we need a remnant. We need faith-talking, faith-living, faith-believing people. People that have been through the storm came back with their faith intact. We need people that can share the message of grace 
people that know how to love God and place a high value on Him. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for this time. I want to thank you for the close friend that you've been and how you've carried me through these storms and how you brought me back to my faith in you and you didn't leave me miserable in the sea of bitterness. And Lord, I don't know about these people that are here, but I imagine there are people here that are battling those battles the same way. And I just ask that you would bring them today to see your love on Calvary, to see your, your salvation, and to see how you can radically, change, totally change their lives by living for you. That's this in your name, amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to ask you a couple questions real quick. Are you here and you're saying, Dave, I really have came to this place for a while, but I really never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I was okay to just come and sit and sing and listen and go out and be the same way I, I came in that's you today, it's a very simple thing to pray Jesus I come to you today a broken person a person in need of you to rebuild my life I accept your death on the cross and I ask that you accept me into your family and lead me on a journey of faith if you say that prayer you're in. You're adopted by God. While every head's bowed and every eye's closed, if somebody said that prayer, would you hold your hand up so we can pray for you? I don't want to point you out. I just want to pray for you. Amen. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's talk about to the rest of us. How many of us have been through some things? Maybe not as ugly as I have, and maybe some worse. But you're here just religious and you're lost in bitterness. Can I pray for you? Raise your hands, please. I see them. Oh, yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. God, thank you for this. Do your work with these people today. Let them leave here different than the way they came because of the power of your word and your Holy Spirit did an awesome work in our lives. And I ask in your name. Amen. Worship team is going to lead us in some music. My wife and I, Greg, some of theirs are going to be here. If you guys have something to pray about, I'd like you guys to come forward. We'll spend some time praying with you. Thank you for your time and your attention.